Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. One of the pleasures of doing this show for so long is that I get to talk to the authors across time, sort of dipping in on their lives and their work at different life stages and different writing stages and find out how the work has changed and how they've changed. But I don't often get to visit the same book across time. So today is a little unique and I think this will be very fun. Danny Shapiro was on the show with me in 2013 to talk about her craft slash memoir book, Still Writing, The Perils and Pleasures of a Creative Life. The book is now celebrating its 10 year anniversary this year. And let's all agree, a lot has happened in those intervening 10 years for all of us. But Danny is still, still writing, and the book is being re-released, and we're going to chat about it again, but through the new lens of time and distance and what still endures and what may have changed. Danny is the best-selling author of four other memoirs, including Inheritance, Hourglass, Devotion, and Slow Motion and six novels, most recently Signal Fires. She has taught at Columbia and NYU. She is the founder of the Sirenland Writers Conference and the host of the podcast Family Secrets. Still writing The Perils and Pleasures of a Creative Life is published by Grove Press. And I should also mention, she's been on the show several times before with Barbara. If you've been a longtime follower of us, she was even at the uh, Pen on Fire speaker series salons that we used to have way back in, in 2010. So she's she's been a friend of the show for a long time. So it's a pleasure to welcome her back. Speaking of the longevity of the show, we are going on 20, <laughs> 24 years, 25 years, over a thousand episodes. And uh, so anyway, I wanted to remind you to check out our Patreon page, which is how we are keeping in touch with our listening audience these days. We are at patreon.com slash writers on writing. If you sign up there, you get weekly writing tips and tricks, a couple of other things that, that Barbara and I find of interest we post up there. So if you're interested in following us on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash writers on writing. On with the show. Danny, hi. Hi, it's so great to be back. You know, I think it's fair to say that we've collectively been through a lot since you and I last talked in 2013, which now just feels like, you know, a quaint time back then. But we've been through a lot collectively, and I feel like, you know, we've all been through a lot personally. So I thought maybe we could just spend these first few minutes together, either catching up or debriefing, whatever we want to call it, on this last decade and sort of the seismic changes in your life and what's happened creatively as a result of that because a lot of work has been produced and published in the interim for you. And so I, I just love to to hear about the last the last 10 years for you. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Not a loaded question at all. I know. You know, how, how much time do you have? <laughs> right. Maya Angelou uh, once, once wrote, there are years that ask questions and years that answer them. And I feel like this last decade has been in many ways the most intense of my life. When you said in your introduction that 2013 seems like a a quaint time and and just the way that time has sort of expanded and collapsed during this decade for all of us. But for me personally, um, so Still Writing came out in 2013. I then in 2016 
I was working on, well, I actually had, had, had finished another memoir, a book called Hourglass, whose subtitle is Time, Memory, Marriage, in which I had written, I was really inquiring into what it is to be in a long-term partnership relationship with someone for the duration, you know, for like where you know you're in it with this person and no one's going anywhere. And, you know, how do we form ourselves as human beings alongside another person? So I was really interested in exploring that. And I was writing about my own marriage, which was its own kind of high wire act. And during that period of time, actually just when I finished Hourglass, which is sort of miraculous for reasons I'll explain in a minute, but just as I finished it, I turned it in. I mean, I finished it, I polished it, I draft after draft. And then in June of 2016, I made a discovery that completely altered everything that I had understood about my entire life, um, which was that my dad, who raised me, was not my biological father. And I discovered this completely by accident because I was doing one of those home DNA tests. My husband was sending away for for one and I went ahead and did it as well, even though I did not suspect anything. I wasn't particularly curious. I thought I knew my family history better than most people. I've been writing about it for my whole writing life. I have been trying to puzzle my father together. My parents, they always felt like a riddle to me. There was something there that I did not understand. And I think that my turn toward memoir away from fiction had a lot to do with that, even though I didn't know that at the time. I began writing memoir quite the surprise to me. I began as a novelist and I thought of myself and still do think of myself as a novelist, but I was digging for something. And then suddenly I found it. And, you know, I had been exploring secrets all my life as a writer. And then I came to this sudden, shocking, like really stunning realization that I was the secret in my family. So after that, I began writing. You know, people who found out what I was going through asked me if I was writing about it. And it just made me, it made me laugh every time because I'm a writer. I'm a memoirist. I've written, I've, I've dug into issues of, you know, family history and identity and otherness and secrecy and the corrosive power of secrets. And then suddenly here was this freight train of a story that just came crashing into my life. And one other thing about that, which is that when I finished Hourglass, which is a very delicately constructed kaleidoscopic narrative, really with no plot, it begins and ends in the same place. And it's kind of a spinning mobile of a, of a structure. And at the time I would say things like, I've broken up with narrative, I'm done with narrative, this kind of work, I've been leading toward it in various ways in terms of refracted kaleidoscopic structures. These are the kinds of books I love to read. It was deeply absorbing and pleasurable to write Hourglass. And then this freight train of a story, capital S, capital N narrative came, you know, just barreling into my life. And so I spent the next couple of years researching and reporting and writing the book that became Inheritance, my last memoir, which is about this discovery and everything that I could find out about it and how it recast and reframed my whole life, my childhood, who my parents were, 
who my biological father is, a million questions that, you know, I set spinning and tried to live inside of and tried to answer. Inheritance came out in January of 2019. I also launched a podcast at the same time about secrets and families called Family Secrets. And it was this really sort of extraordinary moment in my writing life and in my career as a writer, because inheritance just absolutely exploded and it became a big bestseller. I traveled and was touring for it for the better part of a year. Everywhere I went, there were tremendous crowds of very engaged readers. And while this was happening toward the beginning of my tour, so in March of 2019, I was on tour. I was on the West Coast. My husband had come out to meet me. And it was this really, this moment full of great abundance that this story that felt like I was literally born to write was connecting with readers the way that it was. And my husband at that moment of this sort of apex of my creative life in so many ways was diagnosed with extremely serious cancer and everything stopped. And we moved from our house in rural New England into New York City for his treatment. We lived in a borrowed apartment for six months while he went through hardcore chemo and then radical surgery. And while we were in this incredibly difficult, challenging, terrifying time, I still had this best-selling book out there. So I was taking care of my husband and then rolling my bag to an Uber and being whisked off to the airport and flying somewhere and giving a talk and then turning around and wheeling my bag back into an Uber and back into an airplane and back home to take care of my husband. And, you know, in retrospect, I really don't, I have no idea how I managed, except that wherever I was, that's what I was doing. When I was with my husband, I was 100% with my husband. And when I was on stage at some event, for that hour, I was 100% on stage. I look at photos of photographs of myself at that time from those events. And my heart sort of breaks for how, you know, for, for what I was going through, because I was clutching, I would be sitting on a stool, you know, on stage and on a panel uh, with amazing other writers and in these incredible venues, really having, you know, sort of my wildest dreams. I, I couldn't have imagined that this would have happened. And I would be clutching the side of the stool because I was so dizzy. I was afraid I would fall over. And that's what life was like. And my husband, Michael, made a miraculous recovery. He's cancer-free. And it was like we went through this revolving door to the other side of what it is to be experiencing Didion's great phrase, ordinary blessings. You know, we went from ordinary blessings to extraordinary blessings to extraordinary challenges and fear and the intensity of being suddenly you know, in the world of the stricken and the unwell. And when he recovered, which was the fall of fall into the winter of 20, you know, heading into the winter of 2020, that was when the pandemic hit. And essentially, you know, we, we all 
collectively went into this place of trauma. And I went from traveling nonstop for my book to being home during lockdown. My husband came back from, he was making a movie and he came back from shooting it. Our son came back from Europe where he was doing a semester abroad. And I stumbled upon this manuscript as I was cleaning out my office closet as we, you know, I got tired of baking sourdough bread. And so one day I was just like cleaning out my office closet and there was this manuscript of about a hundred pages of a novel that I had started before still writing. After devotion and before still writing, I wrote a hundred pages of a manuscript and I couldn't figure it out. So I put it away, which was, I'm saying it, you know, as if this was no big deal, but at the time, and every writer listening to this knows what this feels like. It was just, I was filled with despair and, and, you know, sadness that I couldn't, I couldn't figure out this book. I loved the characters. I was happy with what I had done thus far, but I had lost my way. So it went into a drawer or rather onto a shelf of my office closet. And I found it again during the pandemic and I sat down and I reread it and it cracked open for me. And I suddenly knew how to tell that story. And that became Signal Fires. And you know, one of the truly miraculous things about that part of the story is that had it not been for all of those events that I've just shared with you, had it not been for the discovery about my dad, had it not been for Michael's cancer, had it not been for being in the world, seeing the ways in which we are all connected, and then the pandemic teaching all of us something about interdependence and in, you know interconnectivity and and really the way that you know everyone on this planet is all in it together i never would have been able to crack that book it was like those characters went to sleep or as a friend of mine said the other day they were in a coma you know they they were in like a deep twilight sleep for a decade or more and then i rediscovered them and I was ready to tell their story. And also if I had cracked it back then when I was writing it, we wouldn't be having this conversation about the 10th anniversary of still writing because I never would have written still writing because I was writing that book. It's funny as you're talking, I'm just thinking about the parallels of what you were going through personally and what we were going through nationally and how they map onto each other so I don't want to use the word neatly, but in time where you had this fracture of an identity crisis of who you were in 2016, which I think mirrors onto what we all, some of us, half of us perhaps, felt in 2016, 2017 of not recognizing where we came from or who we were. And then Michael's illness in 2019 on the precipice of the pandemic and that theme of, of illness and grappling with, you know, the healthcare system and, and what that is at the same time. And those parallels are so interesting to me. And then to say that all of this is what unlocked signal fires. I hadn't realized that that manuscript was on your shelf for so long before all of this, but how, how those things crack open for you in the light of a new day. There's a lot there to think about. Yeah, it has amazed me and it has taught me new things about the creative process and the mysterious ways in which the creative process unlocks for us what we perhaps already know on some level, on some sort of bone deep level, but hasn't risen to the surface of consciousness yet. 
So as you look back over this book 10 years later, what are your thoughts? Do you feel like have, as you're thinking about the creative process changed, have any of your own processes changed? Do you feel like the book pretty much stands as it was 10 years ago, just with more time, more books, but the essence of it is pretty much still how you work? I do think that. I mean, some of my thinking has deepened, but it was really interesting to revisit still writing and feel like it held up. I don't think I would have wanted a 10th anniversary edition if if it didn't feel that way. You know, others of my books, especially my very early books, I don't feel need a new generation's eyes on them. But still writing, for me, the, you know, sort of the, the bedrock of the process, you know, some of what I arrived at in writing the book to begin with. I mean, if anything, they've some of, some of the thoughts have, or some of what I wrote in still writing have become even more relevant. Like there's this uh, chapter about going in and out of the cave, as I think of it, which is when you're writing a book, it's really necessary to go into the cave where there's not a lot of outside stimulation, where you're feeling your way around in the dark, where there isn't noisiness or busyness or distraction. And then when a book is finished, however long in the cave that represents, it, you, you know, the writer comes out of the cave and that's when, and it's easier to come out than to go in, at least for me, because to come out after a long time in that place of sort of feeling around in the darkness, there is, you know, there are bright lights, there's distraction, there are people, there are things to do, you know, there's the publication process, there's the, you know, or the submission process or the promotion process, or you have readers, you get out of your pajamas, you put on nice clothes, you go talk to people. And then at some point that needs to stop. And the writers need, and the writer needs to go back in the cave because ultimately, as I write and still writing, a writer is someone who writes. And one of the things that I think has become increasingly complicated, I mean, it already was complicated a decade ago, but I think even more so now, is that the world is noisier and there's more distraction. And I mean, there's a chapter in still writing called Cigarette Break, where I write about, you know, when, when I was writing my first book, which was a long time ago, I smoked cigarettes and I would sit in my little office and I would open the window and I would you know, when I would get stuck in a piece of work, I would stop and I would light a cigarette and I would smoke the cigarette and I would put it out in the ashtray and then I would continue on working. And, you know, in still writing, I, I muse about like, what is a cigarette break now? Because the one thing that was healthy about a cigarette break, the one and only thing was that it was kind of dream time. How do we find that dream time away from a moment where where we're feeling stuck or we need to sort of shift gears. And it's one of the things I think that is true for, for many of us is that we toggle over to the internet or we check our email. And that is not a cigarette break. That is not a break of any kind. That is not dream time. That's the opposite of dream, dream time. It's the you know, you have, you have no idea the ways in which you are about to be distracted when you do that. And it can really completely mess up what it was that you were just working on and feeling stuck in. And so to me, those things feel like the noisiness and the distraction and the internet and email and, you know, social media, which wasn't nearly as much of a thing 10 years ago in my life as it is now, 
is hugely challenging for people who are attempting to make something out of nothing and sitting in front of their computers uh, doing that. Yeah, you almost talked me into smoking in this book. (laughs) You almost talked me into it 10 years ago, and you almost talked me into it this time. There was some quote about how the mind, I forget who said it, but the mind works best at three miles an hour. And so, you know, I suppose walking is now the new smoking. Yeah. (laughs) If you can, you know, let your mind wander. The other thing that's gotten harder, at least for me, is finding my own relevance in the cultural conversation and feeling like if you're a woman of a certain age who's white, what do you have now to contribute? And is it our time to contribute? And I find that Mm. gets in my way a lot these days of, Mm. Well, it's, it's, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up. And it's another form that the inner sensor takes that perhaps, you know, your inner sensor 10 years ago might've been whispering other things in your ear. And the thing about any inner sensor that's worth its name is that it doesn't keep on whispering the same thing over the years. It keeps changing and morphing. Otherwise it wouldn't be an inner sensor. You would know how to tell it to shut up. You would know how to do a workaround, but the inner sensor all for all of us is extremely agile and nefarious and will find the place where it can seem reasonable to say, you know what, just hang it up. You know, you're done. I mean, when I finished inheritance, the feeling I had, and when, you know, when I was on tour for it and people would say, what's next? It was, it's, it's always my least favorite question. I think it's most writers' <laughs> least favorite, favorite question. But for me at that time, I felt like, well, you know, I really, I mean, I never know, but I thought I might be, I might be done. I'm certainly done with this body of work of memoir that began with slow motion and that ended with inheritance that really represents a body of work that was about excavating and understand, uh, trying to understand what I didn't know I was trying to understand because I didn't have all the information. And so there was a lot of liberation in that feeling of I'm done with this body of work. It, it should be, I just said to my editor the other day, you know, I would love for there to be a boxed set, you know, like a, of my memoirs, because they all feel that in a sense, they're, they're one volume. But the what next? I thought, I don't know. Um, haiku? Is, is, it too late? <laughs> is it too late to, you know, go to rabbinical school? I mean, what, what, you know, what, what is next? And, um, and fortunately, I had other things that I was, I mean, I, I created this podcast that is one of my jobs and one of the things that I do and is a certain kind of storytelling. I started doing some screenwriting and TV writing. And there was really part of me that thought, maybe this is it. And, and I wasn't happy about that because I am at my most alive when I am writing prose. When one word is following the next time, you know, I am, I am following the line of words, as Annie Dillard would have said. That's my medicine. That's how I come to understand everything that I come to understand. These other forms of storytelling don't do that for me. They do other things, but they don't do that. You know, I think that the jump start for me of having those hundred pages of signal fires was very helpful. But, you know, what, what you just said, I do think that there's always a, what right do I have? 
that we all feel and that being able, I mean, permission is a huge part of still writing and to be able to, on a daily basis, grant ourselves permission and say, yeah, I know, I don't know how to do this. I don't know if I have any right to do this. I don't know if it's going to piss somebody off that I'm doing this. Um, I don't know if I'm in some way not honoring someone by doing this. I don't know if I'm smart enough to do this. So-and-so has done this better. I don't know that I have any relevance. What right do I, I mean, there, I could go on. I could just, we could spend the rest of our time together with, you know, by giving you every, every version of what the inner sensor says, but what it boils down to is that's what it is. It's self-censorship. And the other section to tie onto that idea that resonated again with me, and it's like I said, it's so interesting to visit a book over time, both for probably the writer, but also for the reader and where the reader is at the time they encounter a book. And your section on writing ordinary life in here, to that point about what right do I have, but also the world is so, as you say, noisy, but also so the events are so big and so seismic. And so to feel like, well, I better have, you know, three car crashes and five suicide bombers to keep people's interest because that's what I'm competing with on TV. But to slow that down and to say the ordinary life is is life, is that that's how we live our lives. And people can connect to that maybe easier, more authentically and empathically to those ordinary days. And you don't need Resist the urge to go too big, I think, was kind of your advice, and to falsely pump up your narrative with too much action. Yeah, that's so so interesting because, I mean, ordinary life is, I think, one of it's my, one of my favorite chapters in in still writing. And I think about, and I, I quote Mar- Marilyn Robinson in that chapter, and I think about writers who have come before, writers of being part of a tradition. There was just a review in one of the UK papers about signal fires that I loved so much because it put signal fires and my work in the tradition of Alice Munro and Ann Tyler. And it, it, it talked about a few other writers, writers who I admire greatly, but really what the reviewer was saying was these are writers who have written about ordinary life, often about domestic life, and sometimes get, perhaps not in the case of Alice Munro, but who sometimes are viewed as therefore not being as serious as writers who write about quote-unquote big, quote-unquote important subjects but what what this reviewer was talking about was the seriousness of the endeavor and the way that these particular writers, myself included, deal with time and use time structurally to get at something about the human condition. And that's what I've been, I mean, I, I can't help being a Jewish girl from New Jersey, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if I could, if I could come up with another, and I write about this and still writing too, like that's my corner of the world. What I have, my life experience was in the, you know, in the deep background of my childhood, the secrecy, the religiosity, the conflict between my parents, all that was hidden, everything that I didn't yet know. That's the ground from which I sprang. And so 
that's in one way or another what I bring to my work, not necessarily autobiographically. There's nothing autobiographical on the surface of things in signal fires. And yet emotionally and spiritually, it's deeply autobiographical. So this goes to the question of what do we have a right to write about and what is appropriation? I mean, I think back to my third novel is narrated in the point of view of a 64-year-old male psychoanalyst Holocaust survivor. I'm not male and I didn't live through the Holocaust, but I really felt that I knew him. Did I have a right to write about him? Would I be asking that question if I were writing that book now? I imagine I would be, and I imagine it would be a big part of my inner censor's monologue. And yet I never questioned at the time whether I had a right to tell that story because I felt that that story was coming from deeply within me. I wasn't observing the story or going and grabbing it because I thought it would be a juicy story to tell or, you know, for any sort of external reason. It was for really deep internal reasons. And I think that slowly, slowly, perhaps that's one of the things that we're getting to is, you know, what is, I mean, Alex Chi wrote a beautiful essay about, about this, about the idea of like, you know, really asking yourself, why am I writing about this? You know, do I read in this vein? Do I, you know, do I think in this vein? What, what is it? What, what do I have contribute to, to contribute to this that makes me the person to tell this story? Am I trying to tell someone else's story? And if so, do I have a right to do that? I mean, these are, these are deep and powerful questions, but they, and they're very important questions, but they also contribute to a kind of damaging um, self-censorship. I'm so glad you brought this up because, I mean, it's a perennial discussion on the show, at least over the past five or six years. And I feel like we might be getting at least, I, I don't know if I want to say on the other side of this issue, but at least a more nuanced understanding of this issue where, I don't know, it felt like five years ago, it was a very black and white, you stay in your lane command. And now it feels a little more like it's, if it is done very well and authentically and from a place of emotional truth and maybe not, you know, biographical <laughs> mapping on, it's it's okay. And thank God, because the landscape under which we could write was narrowing by the day of what was okay to write about and what wasn't okay to write about. And so I love your answer to well, that. Well, I mean, I, I, think, I think nuance is exactly the, you know, is exactly the right word. And, you know, th these questions need to remain front and center, but they're there to keep us honest. They're not there ultimately to silence voices, but rather to really have each of us interrogate our reasons and our desires and our motivations. And that's something that was perhaps missing that's very much present now. But at the same time, if writers are only able to write out of our direct experience, then there's going to be a tremendous paucity in literature as a result of that. Well, 
We'll be back with more from Danny Shapiro and Still Writing, The Perils and Pleasures of a Creative Life, now out in its 10th anniversary edition from Grove Press. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Uh, nudge to check out our Patreon page if you're liking the show, if you've learned any tips that may have inched you closer to publication, or if you like these behind-the-scenes discussions of how books get made, how authors live their lives. This is your chance to support the show by becoming a backer for couple of bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, 20 bucks a month. You'll get weekly writing tips and prompts and some other goodies. You can find us at patreon.com slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with Danny Shapiro talking about still writing. So you have talked and, and it's certainly true that the, you know, the body of your work has really revolved around the general idea of secrets, secrets and identity. And I was wondering at what point in your career you recognized that, because there's a great chapter in here on framing that we can get into a little deeper in a minute, but, you know, framing versus structure. And it feels like secrets could be a frame, a very broad frame around which your work could fit inside that container. And I wondered at what point you recognized that kind of as the container of your work and whether that helped or hurt <laughs> in the creative mm -hmm. process or whether it, it was an irrelevant question to you? That's a great question. I was aware up until a certain point, I was aware that secrets tended to find their way into my work. And I could have given you a list of reasons of why I thought that was all of which would have been true, but it wouldn't have been the whole truth. I was operating on partial truths and and one giant um, lie, I suppose. It wasn't really until I was writing Inheritance and going through the, I hate this word, but journey, I can't think of a better mm -hmm. word, back, backward in time to understand a great deal of what had shaped and motivated me because one of the things I realized around that time was that our identities as human beings are formed by what we're told when we're very young. They're formed by the stories that we're told when we're very young uh, about ourselves, about our family, about where we come from, about our ancestors, if that's relevant. They're, they're formed by those stories. And the stories that I was told when I was very young were in fact not true. You know, for example, if someone is adopted and the stories they're told when they're very young are that they're adopted and that they that there were these birth parents and this is this is what we know and this is the narrative and this is the story and you know this this is how we came to be your parents, then they know that story. And then that becomes part of of their identity. And that's the true story. It may not, they may not know everything, but it's the true story. What I had wasn't the true story. And so I think that it really gelled for me that a great deal of the, of the digging, the excavating, the thinking, the searching, the inquiring that I was doing all my life as a writer really was because there was this massive thing I didn't know. And there's a phrase in inheritance the unthought known, which is a psychoanalytic phrase that I've come back to again and again. When I first heard it, it just 
pierced me. And I thought, that is it. And when I was writing Inheritance, I went back and I reread my earlier work from my first novel on. And within that work, in the pages of those books, it took my breath away to realize that I knew. I knew. I just couldn't think it. But it was there. It was present. And there's a moment in still writing. I was recording the audiobook actually during the pandemic. And I had to stop when I got to this moment. It was in a passage about snooping through my parents' things as a child. And, and the, the couple of lines were, what was I searching for? A clue, a reason. And the word reason is italicized. And I thought, oh my God, I knew. And so, you know, one of my favorite quotes that's really not very literary, but is has literary application is, is from Dolly Parton. And Dolly says some version of figure out who you are and then do that on purpose, be that on purpose, hmm. figure out who you are and be that on purpose. And in a way I did sort of purposefully take that on as a writer so that instead of it haunting me, I sort of got to haunt it or I got to be in control of it. And so in writing Inheritance and then in creating the podcast and doing all of these interviews with my guests who have uncovered their own different kinds of secrets, I kind of became, you know, really, really steeped in a lot of knowledge about what secrets do to us and what it means to have a secret, what it means to keep a secret, what, what it means to discover a secret and then keep a secret from other people, what it means in my case to keep a secret from myself, something that was really kind of plain as day that I couldn't see, I couldn't know because it was too much of a live wire. And so I did, I think, you know, when I returned to the novel, when I returned to Signal Fires and I proceeded forward from those hundred pages, it already was a book about a family, in part about a family keeping a secret of something that they decide that they're never going to speak of with each other or anyone else ever again. But I, I sort of doubled down on that because I had learned so much and I really wanted to explore what it would do in time, again, to go back to time, what it would do over the course of decades and decades to people who had made a choice to, to bury something that really wasn't going to allow itself to be buried. But at the same time, I resist definition in that way. And when someone calls me, you know, the queen of family secrets or the, you know, whatever, I don't love that because I want every book to be a different mountain that I climb. And every time, you know, and this is also language that I used in still writing, I think every time we finish a piece of work, all we know, if we know anything at all, is how we made that piece of work. We don't know how we're going to make the next piece of work or what that will be. And if we do, then it runs the risk of becoming formulaic. This goes back to still writing, like either there's there's language in still writing about 
you know, my hating the word brand and my hating the word platform, unless it's on the, you know, the sole of a really cool shoe. But in these 10 years, I think many of us, especially, you know, those of us who work for ourselves and make things for a living and have had to navigate the shoals of public life and social media and all of that, it's kind of impossible not to be aware that you do have a brand because you're being told it all the time. And at some point, to go back to Dolly Parton's great wisdom, I thought, okay, here are the things I care about. Here are the things that make my heart beat faster. I meditate every day. I care deeply about the family that I've built and made. I care deeply about my small, very close circle of dear friends. I care about the environment. I care about the world. I need a lot of quiet. I'm an introvert that does a pretty decent job of appearing extroverted when I need to. I'm a writer of both fiction and memoir. My work has helped people, even though I've never set out to help people. I've set out to try to illuminate something for myself and then in so doing, try to find the thread of the universal so that it will illuminate something for others. These are all things that I am. So is that my brand? Okay, so that's my brand. And I stick with that in a way. And it becomes simply what I try to impart, if that makes any sense. And so in this noisy world, I can't imagine thinking about my next novel, my next book and thinking, well, it's got to be about a family secret. That would, (laughs) that thought makes me want to climb under my bed and stay there. And if it does end up being about a family secret, it's not going to be because it's on brand for me or because I thought it would be a good idea. There's literally nothing I've ever done in my life as a writer for better and for worse, nothing I've ever done that has been a move that I'm doing in order to succeed or you know build on what I've already done in a commercial way. It's always been what's next, you know, like waiting for what what's next. And sometimes I have to patiently wait. Sometimes it comes crashing into my life like it did with inheritance. But either way, it's me waiting for it, not forcing it. And when it arrives, because you've done not equal parts memoir and fiction, but a lot of both. Does it present itself as memoir and is your approach to memoir versus novels similar? Or tell me a little bit about dealing with those two different genres and how how you might approach each one differently. When I'm writing memoir, it's a different feeling. I feel like I dive inward and I go to the place, I find it, I locate it, And I go to this place inside of me that becomes the locus of some combination of memory and the story that I'm trying to tell. But it's like, it's a very deep, very quiet dive. And when I'm writing fiction, it feels like I'm sidestepping into a world that I am creating as I'm stepping into it. And that world and those characters and that atmosphere, that landscape become as real or more real 
to me than the world that I'm living in. So they feel very different, but they announce themselves absolutely as what they are. I've never started a memoir and thought, you know, I actually think this is really fiction or started a novel and, and, and thought, you know, actually, I think this is memoir. I, it, whatever the form is, whether it's fiction, memoir, short story, essay, or in, in you know, in recent years, screenplay, podcast, it arrives as what it wants to be. And I just have to pay attention to that. And does one feed the other? I was thinking about your wonderful podcast, and I've I've listened to several episodes, and they're, it's great. And I was wondering if any of those stories feed into your fiction. Maybe subconsciously, you look back at something you wrote and said, ah, I got that from the podcast, or I got that from a, you know, essay I was working on five years ago. Do they talk to each other? Mm -hmm. Some of them do. I think with the podcast, not so much, except for a general understanding of certain human traits that seem to run across so many of my episodes and so many of my guest stories. And that I find really interesting. And I think on some level that does enter my consciousness and finds its way into my work, whether it's my understanding of trauma and what trauma does to us, or to go back to, you know, secrets and silence and shame and what all of that does to us, how that acts upon us. So in that way with the podcast, but in, in other respects, yeah, I mean, I think that there have been, well, for example, I spent the better part of a year working on an essay I thought it was an essay that when I finished it, and it was a, a very achronological, nonlinear essay that I thought was about objects and all of these objects that I had inherited from all of my dead family members. I mean, I'm the only, I'm the only child on my mother's side of the family. And I was my father, my, my parents, you know, my, my, I was my parents' only child. My father has um, a child from an earlier marriage. But, you know, because of this, I ended up with a lot of things, a lot of dishes, a lot of stuff, a lot of furniture. I mean, my basement is a fiasco. And I was trying to write this essay about the meaning of, of, of these objects and the accumulation of them. And, and I, it was a, it was a really difficult essay to write and I finished it. And the next morning I woke up and I thought, it's not an essay. It wants to be a book. It wants to be a memoir about time and memory and marriage. And that I, I ripped up that essay, which was like basically ripping up a year's work. And I wrote Hourglass. It, it, it came to me with utter clarity. I saw what it was trying. I saw why it had been such a difficult essay to write because it didn't want to be an essay. And I kept on strong arming it into this form so that's that's one example. And then another example, and this was true in Hourglass as well, is that I had kept journals for many, many, many years. I was a prolific journalist. I'm not a journalist. I was a prolific journal keeper. And I didn't know why I continued to save them because I didn't ever want anybody else to read them. And then I found when I was writing Hourglass that a few passages from the journals found their way into hourglass because again it was about time and I wanted I was so interested in the way that I was sort of haunted by this feeling that my my younger self all the different 
younger selves that I've ever been are still alive inside of me, as I think that they are inside of all of us. And how can we how can we speak across decades to our younger selves? And do they speak to us? And and I had these journals. So I got to, in a way, explore that and and attempt to respond to that question. So so yeah, I mean I don't I don't think anything is ever wasted or lost or you know even even work that never sees the light of day can end up informing can and does end up informing the work that is to come. I wanted to go back to something you said at the beginning of the interview about breaking up with the narrative structure, the traditional narrative structure and you have a, a great section in here on structure and resisting the temptation of outlining as some novelists are prone to do. And I was thinking about this essay, We this book we bring up by Jane Allison, comes on spiral, meander, explode, something like that. But the different ways you can structure books that doesn't necessarily have to be linear, doesn't necessarily have to be that fry tag pyramid. And I was wondering if there are things you can say about that in terms of when when you're thinking about either a memoir or a novel or even shorter things, if you think about it in some sort of visual patterning at any point in the process or certainly after it's done, how you think about structure and form because because you do play around with it in your work and and that chapter to me was so useful in in still writing. Mm. That's also a great question. It's it's different with each piece of work, but you know one question that I get a lot is uh, because Signal Fires is also nonlinear in its chronology, and you know and certainly Hourglass is nonlinear, and I've written a lot else that has been nonlinear. Like, do you write it in a linear way and then break it up and make it nonlinear? And I can't imagine doing that. The pleasure. And the, and the like sort of the deep satisfaction in doing that kind of work. And also I think the deep satisfaction in reading that kind of work is it's associative. It's in discovering what belongs to what. Why does this passage, why is this passage followed by white, white space and then leads to this passage? How does this thing that's, not obviously connected, lead us to that thing. And I think that that leaves room for the reader, which I love to do. I mean, I'm always saying to my students, trust the reader. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to hold, you don't have to grasp the reader by the hand. The reader will come along with you if you've established a kind of authority. You know, if, if the reader feels that the reader is in good hands, the reader will go anywhere in a story. We can move centuries, we can move decades, we can move into different points of views of characters, as long as there's a feeling that there is a kind of, you know, you, you use the word pattern, and sometimes that's the right word, but as long as there is a tapestry, you know, something is being woven that is going to make greater sense than it would if it were being told in a chronological, straightforward way. Pattern comes into it. Like I remember when I was writing Hourglass, the book opens with a moment in which the narrator, me, is looking out of my office window at the driveway below and her husband 
my husband, is standing there. It's winter. He's in the snow. He's in his bathrobe and slippers. And he is pointing what appears to be a rifle at, at the roof of the house. And, and then there's some white space. And then the next passage begins. The woodpecker appeared in a fall. And, you know, my husband was, it was a BB gun, in fact, and he didn't, he shot and missed the woodpecker, but it opens with the woodpecker. And what is the woodpecker? The woodpecker is a woodpecker who was damaging the side of our house, but the woodpecker was also a metaphor. And the metaphor of the woodpecker was erosion, time. You know, there were, there were holes literally being drilled into the sides of our house, um, into our dwelling place. You know, the house needed a paint job. You know, things are constantly falling apart and having to be patched up. You know, as I'm saying this to you 10 years later, I'm looking out at the same the same window, at the same view, but we have completely new siding on our house <laughs> and a completely new roof. I mean, this is what you do when you live in a house for a long time. But at the time that I wrote it, we hadn't done that and we couldn't afford to do it. And there was this sense of time and erosion and two artists, you know, scrambling and working as hard as we could to, you know, make our lives work together. And, and so when I was pretty far along into the writing of Hourglass, I actually got a notebook and I made a list of every single moment like that, that was part of a pattern. So the woodpecker needed to appear at least three times in the book. Twice would be a mistake. Three times would be deliberate. Three times would be a pattern and kind of stitch together and hold together that, that tapestry. Or also in Hourglass, I quote the wisdom and the work of others, you know, many times over the course of what is a very slim book. And I really had to look at how much of this book should be the words of others before it becomes a commonplace book and not a memoir. What's too little and what's too much? These were things that I really needed to think about when I was nearing the end of a first draft. And then when I went back draft after draft, honing it to make it into you know, as, as the best iteration of itself as I could. So that's how I was thinking of it. But I never, like, you know, the, the idea of reverse engineering it, of writing it linearly and then breaking it up, I can't imagine working that way. The other thing that occurs to me as you're talking that I'm reminded that was helpful in this book was the idea that making the mistakes you know, if you pre-outline something, you're just, uh, I, I forget the metaphor you use, but you're just kind of, you know, dragging a horse through the snow that you already know how it's going to, how it's going to turn out. And the act of making mistakes, the act of going down blind alleys, and the act of discovery is really what makes these novels wonderful and makes any writing wonderful and kind of makes it sing. But but I, I really appreciated that comment about making mistakes and the discoveries that are made within those mistakes. And, and maybe mistake isn't even the right word to use because there are these kind of happy events, circum uh, coincidences or something. But, but I yeah. appreciated that. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad. I mean, I, it was, I, I that moment um, in still writing is there's this canvas. Mark Strand, the poet had 
made these beautiful pieces of art out of his poems on huge canvases in which he wrote out his poems and then he redrafted the poems and made doodles on them. And there are these big swooping arrows and asterisks and comments. And the canvases themselves are really works of art. And in the in the catalog in the, of the opening essay for the catalog for the show of these works, Jory Graham, the, the great poet, writes the opening essay and jo- Jory refers to it as, it's like watching the mind make mistakes. And I loved that so much. And, you know, one of the things that I will often say, especially to memoirists who are afraid to write something because they're afraid of what someone will think or, you know, what a family member will think or of hurting someone's feelings. And, you know, one of the things that I've come to that I'm not sure that I've come to yet when I wrote Still Writing is, you know, no one's going to read what you're writing. Uh, it's not going to leap off your desk and onto the shelves of your local bookstore, I promise. <laughs> and you know, if you go into your room and you close the door and you write down what you already know, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? Memoir is not the act of writing down what we already know. Just as is true in fiction, it's just a different process. It is the act of discovery. And if you stop yourself from writing it, writing a no-holds-barred discovery draft of you know, really, you know, the thing that scares you, the, you know, the places that you're afraid to go, you write that, if you stop yourself to go back to censorship, if you stop yourself from writing that, you won't know what you have, you won't know what you might discover. And so it's in that process that, and 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 that's full of the mind making mistakes. I mean, mistake can seem like a, a negative word, but I think creatively, it's an incredibly important word, because you know, we are, if we're on the high wire, we're always going to be risk falling off, risking falling off and getting back on and falling off again, you know, and as, as Beckett said, fail, fail better. Yeah. And you were the one who convinced me, I think back in the day to write out in longhand. I've heard that advice in the context of, it makes you slow down, but in the context of, you can see all of your thoughts, your thoughts scribbled out, the arrows on the white page, moving things around, you can't do that on the computer. So that that too resonated yet again 10 years later. And that's, mm. yeah, that's great advice. I'm glad. So much in here. So much in here. I highly recommend people revisit this. If you didn't have a chance to visit it before, pick it up now because there's, yeah, there, there's so many, so many great nuggets in here. And and if you've even heard this advice before, hearing it again in a new context, like I say, it's a new pleasure. Well, I, I love hearing that. And also in, in revisiting it, um, I wrote a new f- forward for it, um, which was a really wonderful thing to be able to do. And, you know, in a concise way to really think about the whole idea of what we know and when we know it. And a lifetime as a writer is a lifetime of constantly discovering what we know now and that we're, that we're, you know, hopefully always learning new things. And so each piece of work represents what we know at, you know, everything that we can give to it at a particular moment in time. But if we continue and continue, and writers are people who have every opportunity to continue to get, to grow and get better as we age, you know, we, we, we live in such a youth culture and there's a great 
emphasis on, you know, debut writers and, you know, writers early in their careers and, you know, specific awards and lists for young writers and all that is great. And writers continue to be able to grow and never stop growing until we're robbed of, you know, our capacity to 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 think or to reason or to create. And I, I think a, a, a life spent doing that, a life spent, you know, on the page learning what we know now is an incredible gift. Yeah, I've become, you know, as I'm getting older, more obsessed with reading about writers who discover maybe they've been writing their entire lives, but maybe they haven't published until they're in their 50s or 60s. and Or 70s or 80s, I see. Or, yes, yes. Yeah. And there's, a, I, I will mention another plug for the book. There's a, a kind of a heartbreaking section at the end of this about people who rush to publication prematurely and the perils of doing that. And I think that, you know, in this high fast world, there is an inclination for that of I've got to get out there. I've got to get ahead of this, whatever this is. And, you know, the work takes the time it takes and rushing it out into the world is only doing you a disservice. So that that was a good reminder as well. I'm glad to hear you say that. I, I think about that a lot because I was aware, you know, when Inheritance came out and, you know, my my life as a writer in general, my trajectory, both in terms of critical acclaim, awards, sales has been upward from the beginning, yeah. you know, and it's been, you know, it's been, it's, if, if you were looking at me right now, you'd see, I was, I'm making like a sort of side of a mountain with my hand. And the thing about that, you know, when it, when inheritance came out and, and it did have all this success, I was so glad that it was my 10th book because I knew what it meant. I didn't feel that it was coming to me or that it would always be like this or anything like that. I just felt grateful. And the same thing with Signal Fires, which is also, you know, out there in the world, you know, finding a lot of readers. I am nothing but grateful, thankful, and to misquote Jane Kenyon, you know, very aware that it, it, it could have been otherwise, that it always can be otherwise. And, you know, I think about the people that I know or, or writers who I'm familiar with who had the first book be a huge book. It's often very difficult because the assumption is, oh, it's always going to be like that. And I have no such assumptions. Hmm. And there's a feeling, you know, I, I, I recently said a version of this to a very dear friend who used to be my agent and who is no longer agenting. And we were walking and talking and, and I said a version of this to her and she said, you have kept your head down and just kept working. So that's another way of saying still writing, I guess, but, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, th this is, it's a lifetime of, you know, filling the bathtub, you know, filling the bathtub one drop at a time. And, you know, at some point you, you get to take a bath. Well, at the risk of, of talking about people's platforms, I do have to tell people where to find you. You <laughs> <laughs> do have to do the business part. Uh, well, you've got a great website and, and the podcast. I really do want to encourage people to listen to the podcast. It's wonderful. Well, in addition to the body of work. Yeah. And, and, and people can also find me on Instagram, which is my, my favorite of the social media. I actually enjoy it. And, and you know, post there pretty regularly. 
and and yeah, on my on my website, any any appearances or any of the very occasional teaching that I do, any upcoming publications or or events are are all on there. It's always a pleasure. I hope we get oh. to do it again in person one of these days. Uh, if you're ever on the West Coast or or doing an event on the East Coast, and I'm out there, it was it was fun to do that. It was 13 years ago now. It was. It was. I hope we get to do it again in person. Me too. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Be well. That was Danny Shapiro. The book is Still Writing, The Perils and Pleasures of a Creative Life. It is out in its 10th anniversary edition and published by Grove Press. In addition to our Patreon page, you can always visit our websites. Barbara's is penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com, two hours in Marie. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week, and thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.